0: All ninjas, calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio.
1: Today, on Lime Ninja Radio.
0: And so then I realized, oh my gosh, um, if if you're kinda of a bit narcissistic, what you're actually doing is denying other people's reality because reality is too scary. So I called this Psych profile um, the brain sort of a brain wired for danger or a cap is what I ended up calling it. Um, And it it can go, basically the underlying thing is a sensitivity to the environment um, with high adrenaline, with an exaggerated stress response, and a low basal arousal.
1: This podcast is sponsored by the Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the symptom tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to limeninjaradio.com/tracker and sign up. That's limeninjaradio.com/tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your host and acupuncturist, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 222. And this week we have the creator of the RCXX theory, Sharon McLaughlin. Also, welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lyme Ninja Radio, Aurora.
2: Hello. And in, in this episode, you'll learn three main things. You'll learn about Sharon's RCXX theory and how these genes contribute to chronic illness when adrenal fatigue is not the correct diagnosis, and how all these different symptoms suggest a greater susceptibility to mast cell activation syndrome.
1: Thanks, Aurora, and a big shout out to all you longtime Lyme ninjas. You are the reason we have half a million downloads. Aurora and I really appreciate you tuning in. And we'd like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. You are now officially a Lime Ninja.
2: Yes, welcome. And as you know, Lyme disease is an international problem. Each week we have listeners join you from all over the world. And this past week we've had listeners tune in from Ethiopia to France and from India to Ireland.
1: I'm always amazed... How many different countries tune in each week? Yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, it's awesome. I
2: have a lot of fun <laughs> with this one.
1: <laughs> okay, Aurora. Tell us a little bit more about today's guest Sharon McLathery.
2: Sharon McLathery is a board-certified psychiatrist who has practiced in Arizona since 2005. She was also board-certified in internal medicine and completed residencies for, at both Drexel University as well as interning at Duke University Medical Center. In 2009, Sharon fell ill with Mast Cell Activation Syndrome, POTS or postural osteoarthritic tachycardia. No, no, no,
1: almost almost postural orthostatic.
2: Oof, so close. Yes. And also chronic fatigue syndrome. In researching what might be causing her symptoms, she discovered a set of genes that she she believes causes a greater susceptibility to stress and inflammation and her mast cell activation syndrome.
1: Exactly. I came across, actually a listener mentioned Sharon to us, and I read a little bit about what she was writing and absolutely fascinated by it. It's one of these deeper genetic patterns that if you also have Lyme disease on top of all of this, it's just the perfect storm, as Bob Miller likes to say. So please pay attention. It may help you solve some of the missing pieces of your Lyme puzzle. Hello, Sharon. This is McKay Rippey from Lyme Ninja Radio. Hi, McKay. I'm so excited to connect with you and thank you for taking time and energy out to speak with you. I know you have your own health struggles, which has led you down a path of genetics and biochemistry and maybe epigenetics to put together really a novel theory about why some people are just so very, very sick. Including yourself, right?
0: Yes, that's true. It, it's taken a few years of observing myself and observing a lot of other people.
1: So, what happened that you started looking for alternative explanations for what was going on?
0: Well, um, so here's the thing: I I went to medical school and I did two um, residencies—one in psychiatry and one in internal medicine—and I was always Very interested in the mind-body connection and med psych conditions, Um, but uh, as it turns out in this world, um, a lot of times things aren't quite ideal, so it's hard to practice med psych. Um, So I had to choose one or the other, and I went into psych, Um, and over time in psych, I noticed that a lot of people that, that come to see a psychiatrist have a lot of physical issues that are kind of unexplainable. And a lot of what we've been taught in residency and in training um, is that, you know, these things are psychosomatic, they're, you know, somatoform disorder, you sort of teach people to deal with their dysfunctional beliefs about them. And to me, it just never quite sit right, but I wasn't sure. Um, And then in 2009, I actually started to develop mast cell activation syndrome. Um, and I had absolutely no idea what was happening to me. It was very bizarre. So I had just gone through, um, a tremendous amount of emotional stress, but I also had some weird, um, physical symptoms that could have brought it on. So I had a virus that lasted about three months. I had, um, erythema nodosum, which usually goes, um, yeah, it's, it's big, um, sort of red patches that are nodular all over your body. And it is associated with um, valley fever, which, you know, I'm exposed to here in Arizona. Um, It's usually um, antibody complexes that cause it. But it's, you know, it's a pretty serious thing usually. It's usually associated with something pretty serious. And I didn't know what that was coming from. Um, And, you know, I did, like I said, I was having my house renovated. um, I was having trouble at my job. You know, I had a lot of things going on. And I just started to become allergic to everything. And I think probably most people listening know what mast cell activation is. But um, the mast cells are basically allergy cells in the body. Um, they're they're the primary sort of guard of the body, um, and they granulate or dump. Some substances, they can either dump everything or some substances um, in response to insults, and usually it's allergic insults, but when you get mast cell activation, they can degranulate um, kind of almost willy-nilly, although I think um, we do know now that stress is a huge um, trigger for them. So anyway, um, I was allergic to everything, and I was having... not just the things that you think of necessarily with allergy, but a lot of gut problems, a lot of diarrhea, a lot of migraines. Um, I was having tremendous brain fog. I was now, um, I understand having symptoms of uh, brainstem compression. I mean, I knew something was terribly wrong. I was having trouble tracking with my eyes. Everything was, was, off. I was having even trouble with my fine mo- motor movements, like writing um, my patient notes. I was putting in extra um, loops in the letters, and I couldn't help that. Um, but thankfully, I was found that I was able to hold it together um, for the one day that I was working a week um, and then sort of collapse and be much sicker during the other times, which is also a big clue um, that goes right into my theory. But anyway, um, I was really going down. It was very scary. I very quickly realized that a lot of the symptoms I had were things that I had been taught were part of somatoform disorders. Of course. Um, it's yes, all in your head. Yes, yes. And very likely, I was not going to be taken seriously. Um, I did float it by a couple friends of mine um, and you know, sort of got that look that now I'm very familiar with when you... How traditional doctors kind of about some of these symptoms. Um, and so I started to look deeper. And, and, and ironically, actually, I was studying for the internal medicine recertification boards at the time um, and was running into these symptoms. And the answers were CBT and, and fibromyalgia and things like that. So, um, you know, it was all very sort of disturbing to be kind of going down and knowing that this is a problem. About the same time, I realized that I was very, very hypermobile, um, meaning double jointed, very flexible.
1: And had you um, always and... had you always been hypermobile?
0: Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, I, I used to be able to put my legs behind my head and things like that. <laughs> um, and you know, I always had the sprained ankles. I've right. always had um, a kind of exaggerated stress response. You know, I startle easily. Um, I've always had a lot of the sort of things that go with EDS um, that before people really get sick with EDS, just the stuff that tends to run with it. But I so what,
1: hang on, hang on. What's for, for people who don't know what's EDS? Yes. That's
0: what I'm about to say. So okay, EDS good. <laughs> is Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Yes. And I had obviously studied that. Um, I did very well in internal medicine um, and, and had taken the boards previously. So and did well, So I knew about Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, but they said it was a 1 in 5,000 rare condition. You know, you're like the rubber man. Um, Some, you know, basically I had never thought that it would pertain to me. And strangely enough, I was just sort of on the Internet um, messing around, and I saw this article, something, something just popped up about the relationship between anxiety and joint hypermobility. And I said, well, you know, I'm a psychiatrist. Um, I'm going to read this. And then it has the criteria for Ehlers-Danlos, and it was talking about um, what joint hypermobility is. And I said, oh, I can do all that. <laughs> and then I started Googling some more about Ehlers-Danlos and joint hypermobility, and I went into the rabbit hole that so many people have fallen into. And once um, in that rabbit hole, I realized, oh, my gosh, I have just about everything that they talk about, and this illness that I'm getting, somebody had written about mast cell activation syndrome, which is common in, in Lyme disease, so I, I'm imagining most people here know what that is. So I had, somebody had mentioned mast cell activation, now this is 2009, and, and she said, oh, my mast cells are degranulating all over the place, or something like that. And I thought, gosh, I've never heard of that. And it sounds a little crazy. Like, how can this be? Um, you know, that's, that's really far out. And then I came to sort of understand over the next year or two that, in fact, mast cell activation, what mast cells would be dumping into my system would actually explain everything I was having and now there were a few things coming out that maybe people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome had a high rate of mast cell activation. And I found somebody, uh, Diana Driscoll, I can mention. She is therapeutic optometrist with um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and mast cell. And she was one of the first people to put it together. And she made a website called prettyill.com, found her website, talked with her, and got on a drug from Canada called Ketotifen, which now is pretty well known, and was much better. So um, that, but but I wasn't cured, <laughs> and I started to develop more things. And what I really realized is that um, this illness that I developed is common to so many people, and people are falling into this illness from other directions, like Lyme, like like Ehlers-Danlos, like um, myalgic encephalomyelitis, um, chronic fatigue syndrome. So there, there are toxic mold as well. These are all ways that sort of fall into this, this huge illness that has many different groupings of symptoms that respond to different things. Um, and I sort of call these all the spinning plates because I really believe that um, it's the stress load that sort of keeps it running. And if you can knock out as many of these these symptom complexes, the more likely you are to be well. But it's really about sort of keeping all the plates spinning by treating all of these things, (laughs) figuring out what's going on. And um, anyway, that started my whole journey, and then I was um, now looking back at my psych patients and saying, wait a minute. They're having the same stuff I'm having. Parts of it. And, um, and, you know, not everybody has all the things. So some people have a few of the things or different symptom complexes. Um, and I was sort of putting that together. And um, I started to examine my patients for joint hypermobility, and I found something very interesting. And that was that most of them have some degree of joint hypermobility. But certainly not enough to meet criteria for Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Now I meet full criteria.
1: Yeah. So pausing there for a second, are, are there tests that you did, or did you just ask them questions?
0: No. There's actually um, something called, and I I don't know if it's Baton or Byton scale. I say it differently depending on who I'm talking to. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but anyway, it it has. Um, you can find it online. It's B e i g h t o n. And it's actually a scale that tells you sort of what, what to bend, and you see if you can bend things that way. One of the, one of the key ones is bending your thumb so it touches your forearm. Right. Um, but there's a lot of other, other things, and I have certainly seen a lot of patients that can't touch their forearm with their, um, with their thumb but can do something else that's really unusual. I had one who said, oh, I'm not hypermobile at all. And I go out to the waiting room and she, she's got her legs <laughs> like up some crazy way up behind the couch wrapped around. And, and <laughs> just said, <"Yeah>, you are. <laughs>
1: that's not normal. <laughs>
0: so I started to notice that most people don't meet criteria for Ehlers-Danlos, but they're a little bit. And here's the other thing. There is a psych profile that runs in all these people, including me. Um, that was the other thing that I really noticed. Um, And at first, I thought the profile was a certain way. I thought, oh, we're all sensitive empaths with some sensory sensitivities. Um, And we start off a little daring, um, sort of liking danger because it gives us kind of a rush. And later on, we don't like it. but, but we're, at, because we become more, we, be, we become more sensitive to the environment and it becomes more overwhelming and anxiety producing. And that people are somewhere along this continuum, but this is sort of the psych profile. And I thought, we're all really nice people. We're all really empathic. We really care about other people and we kind of caretake them. And so I stuck with that for a bit until I met some people who were actually very narcissistic and not to, <laughs> so nice um, with this psych profile um, but they usually aren't as medically sick um, you know they they usually have other other issues that would that I would be seeing them for and so then i realized oh my gosh um, if if you're kind of a bit narcissistic what you're actually doing is denying other people's reality because reality is too scary so I called this psych profile um, the brain, sort of a brain wired for danger or CAPS is what I ended up calling it. Um, and it, it can go, basically the underlying thing is a sensitivity to the environment um, with high adrenaline, with an exaggerated stress response and a low basal arousal. So people are not, um, they might seem like they're jacked up a lot of the time because you're seeing them when they're sort of performing or around people. But they're also very sort of sleepy and slow down when they're not on. Um, and so that's sort of, um, that's one of the major, that's a major feature of it. But there's a lot to it. And it does, like I said, it does kind of morph over time with experience. But I saw this psych profile and I realized that this, this is a really big thing. Because if I saw this psych profile in people, if I asked if they had certain things in their family, they would. And chronic illness is one of those things, this sort of grouping of these syndromes. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I, I was pulling that out. I was noticing also that there was a lot of psych in the family. Um, there was joint hypermobility if people happened to have noticed it. Um, there were also a lot of sort of outside-of-the-box genius, thinker, genius type thinkers, genius-type thinkers. Um, people who um, sort of systematize well, who try to figure out, well, how does that work? Um, this sort of a different, different type of thinker. And so over time, I was gathering this information and saying, all this, mean, you know, there's meaning to this. I don't know what it is, but um, all this fits. All this fits together. It, these aren't individual disorders. These, this, is, this is all related. Um, and Ehlers-Danlos or joint hypermobility was a major, major clue because why, why is that running with all of this? Now, um, the Ehlers-Danlos um, people like to believe that there's going to be a gene found, a collagen gene, that's going to explain everything that the Ehlers-Danlos people get. But everything that the Ehlers-Danlos people or a lot of the stuff the Ehlers-Danlos people get when they start to get chronically ill and get things like mast cell activation, um, all those things are kind of similar to what the Lyme people get and what the MOLD people get and what um, the CFS-ME people get So, or ME-CFS, sorry. Um, But anyway... It's all very similar, um, and it cannot be explained by collagen alone. It just can't. They're they're trying to. Um, They found um, white matter lesions in the brains of people with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And so what they said was that um, it's from injury. It's from brain injury, repeated brain injury, because we're more delicate than other people. But there's also white matter lesions in MECFS and I believe in Lyme and, you know, in, in most of these things. And interestingly, in the people who are carriers for the gene that I'm interested in, <laughs> also get white matter lesions.
1: So, yeah, the, um, the, the white yeah. matter interesting. I was at a, the main Lyme conference last year and oh, I wish I remember who was presenting on, on brain lesions. But essentially, brain everybody's got brain lesions. And the people who are sick have more of them. Yeah. So it's it's like the the the, the immune system isn't, or the repair system, or, or one of the systems isn't able to to manage kind of the the natural damage that's being done. And that's right. and anytime there's chronic inflammation, uh, just the cascade. And it's it's very interesting that you're putting together these patterns and yes. i think I think it's brain fascinating, yeah yes.
0: yeah, so brain inflammation is is you know clearly a better <laughs> better explanation, I think, than you know something' wrong with the collagen. Um, so hmm. you know, that's where I was kind of scratching my head and saying, you know, it can't all be this collagen gene, and it doesn't explain why these other people are getting down this pathway in a similar, from a different direction. Right. And that some of them are, um, well, most of them have a little bit of hypermobility. But at then by then I was starting to come across people who weren't hypermobile that were going down this pathway and had this kind of brain, um, this way of being. And um, and so that was very intriguing to me. I also had people who told me they were born stiff, abnormally stiff. Um, and their whole family is stiff and they have geniuses and they have all this you know and they have chronic illness and they have this spike stuff and there's you know within the family sort of spattered throughout the family so i was starting to think you know th- this is this is really um there's something about hypermobility that it's running with that hyper there's something that hypermobility is running with that's causing this but it doesn't have to be present um so i started thinking like that and then um I was very sick. I mean I, I I would recover, like I said, the mast cell activation treatment took me, you know, about eighty percent five percent back. But then I started developing other syndromes, other other weird complexes that I had to work through and figure out what to do about. And um, you know, I was I was struggling. And I remember um, we were we were at our ranch, and I always do better there because um, there's not a lot of stimulation. It's very relaxing. It's in the middle of nowhere. And um, this person that I met on an EDS support group sends me, um, and I never know whether to mention her name or not. She, I think she sort of wants me to, but doesn't want me to. But um, <laughs> but anyway, um, she is on my website, and I I don't know if I should mention her here. So. Um anyway, she sends me an article about the RCCX module and she said, I think this is this is connected somehow. And I was laying in bed and I'm trying to read this thing and I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, this is such hardcore genetics. I, I, I said, you know, I was pretty good in genetics. I remembered it pretty well during med school. I took it in grad school and then med school as well. Um but it's been, you know, fifteen years and my brain is, you know, probably getting more white matter relations and I'm <laughs> struggling and, you know and so I thought, I can't read this now, but I'm gonna I'm gonna um, do a little reading around and see if I can figure out how to read this. And then I sort of was thinking about it over the span of about three days, and I'm out on my horse and I said, "Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, this is it." And my other half like, "What's it? what's it?" And I said, "This is it. this is it. She's right it, it is this." And um, basically, He thought I had gone a little nutty.
1: Off the Um, deep end, huh?
0: But I just, all of a sudden, it started to all come together. So here's the thing. The RCCX module is um, a grouping of four genes that sit side by side. Um, And I'm going to explain this as simply as possible. But um, these four genes, one is a Joint hypermobility gene. It's actually um, causes joint. Well, actually, it's not a joint hypermobility gene. It's an extracellular matrix gene, which is the the substance that um, that you know joints and, and tissues are made out of. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: it's not a coll- It's not collagen, but it's um, collagen kind of within all this. Um,
1: it's the goo. It makes the goo. <laughs>
0: <laughs> So anyway, um, mutations in this gene are known to p- produce um, Ehlers-Danlos-Level joint hypermobility, meaning extreme hypermobility. But they're also known, other mutations in this gene are also known to produce lesser hypermobility. And um, some people also, I think, don't have any hypermobility. We don't really know because there are so many different mutations of this gene, and there's no reason to study the people that don't have any effects of it. Yeah, of course. Um, But we do know it's associated with a lot of common conditions, and it's felt to be pretty, that mutations in this gene are felt to be pretty prevalent in the population, and they're not people who are recognized as having a connective tissue disorder.
1: What's the name of the gene? Or what's huh? what's the what's the name of the gene? The symbol itself.
0: Oh. So this one is TNXB. It's called and it codes for tenascin X, which is the extracellular matrix protein. Um. So anyway, this this observation that I had that not everyone is super hypermobile, but they might be a little bit, or or most of them are a little bit. And that some can actually be stiff would go with this because um, different mutations of this gene could possibly cause stiffness or even just normal-looking tissue from the outside. Um, the other thing about uh, tenascin, about TNXB, is that it's associated with um, abnormalities in TGF-beta signaling, and high TGF-beta is a very common finding in these chronic. That's sort of part of the symptom complexes. Um, it's, it's in mold, it's in, it's in a lot of these conditions. Um, so that's kind of a, that's also a tip-off um, that, you know, it might, that TNXB, for me, that was also a, sort of another connection. But more and more things kind of fell into place. So the, another, the other genes, um, the, the fourth one, we don't know what it does, but the other two that are important that sit side by side um, the other one is CYP twenty one A two, and when I talk about CYP twenty one A two, everybody thinks, oh, that those are the the um, those are the uh, the genes that are involved in metabolizing drugs and things like that. Those are other CYP genes. Um, so this one is separate. This isn't. This is um, a gene that codes for the enzyme twenty one hydroxylase. That is very much involved. That is a hundred percent involved in the production of cortisol, which is stress hormone, and aldosterone, which is um, a hormone that controls salt and water regulation. Oh. And um, yes, Bing Bing. So <laughs> we all we all seem to have low blood volume, and it's being found that that's another thing that runs through these chronic illnesses: is the low blood volume. And actually, salt wasting. Um, we tend to crave salt. Um, we also tend to have crunchy salt on our skin more than other people when we sweat, which is interesting. Which also goes with um, that mutation. Um, so. So uh, is Dr. is is
1: hypo is hypotension a feature of this?
0: Yeah. Um, now that's a, that's an interesting one. So most of the people, I'd say, ninety percent. Have lowish blood pressure,
1: but now, some it's not have high.
0: Low, yeah. But lowish. Yeah. Um, there is a small percentage, though, that is abnormally high. Yeah. And mast cell activation is associated with either high or low yep. blood pressure. Yeah. So you've got to, There's an issue here with all since there are so many symptom complexes. Um, they all have their own pathophysiology. These different symptom complexes. And they, and they alter the presentation, which just makes everything very confusing. So it really is important. Um, a big part of my getting better was figuring out what symptoms ran together, what symptoms happen at the same time, and what, what do they respond to. And when you knock those symptoms out, what's left? I mean, it's really, um, I was very scientific about how to figure out
1: that's so important. Let's pause here for a second because sure. one of the things we see, I, I have a friend who has Lyme disease and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And what had happened was she was so focused on Lyme for such a long time, she actually did a good job of, of tamping down the infection. So whether it's 100% gone, who knows? But it was no longer the major player. And then she was still extremely sick and getting worse And all the things you described with the mast cell activation, it got to the point where she was better off not eating. It's like eating was too much of an activator of the mast cells and would just kill her. I mean, it was just – it's brutal. She's she's clawing her way back to health, but it's so difficult. And it's so important to – Lyme can be an activator, like you said before, for these types of things. And once you get on top of the infection itself and you're still not doing well – at some point, you have to kind of put Lyme on the back burner and address these other things and look outside the tick, so to speak, and really address. And that's that's one reason why I wanted you to, to come on the show and to show people how complex, you know, these syndromes get going and all you need is a trigger. Like for you, you know, you had your rash and the emotional stress and whatever else was going on and all of a sudden things are going – to downhill really fast and you're still, you know, yeah, exactly. And you're still, you know, bringing yourself back up. Lime can be one of those things. And that's why it's important to talk to people like you. So thanks for letting me take over the mic for a little bit.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, I'll I'll try to go back to where I was. So um, (laughs) I was talking about the RCCX module and I'd gone through Yep, is the one that has to do with um, the structure, you know, structural aspects of the body. Um, and TGF beta, um, and I had gone on to CYP21A2, which is actually the main enzyme in the acute stress response, and is also involved with the production of aldosterone, um, which is salt and water maintenance or um, homeostasis. So, um, looking at um, CYP21A2, um, I really looking at the implications, and there are tremendous implications if you have a mutation in that gene, um, because, well, I can go into tons of detail, and I'm try not to, but um, but a lot of people with mutations in that gene have severe mutations, and they're actually diagnosed at birth because they they have a life-threatening condition, and they're going to need steroids um, in order to survive. Um, But there is a group of people who are not diagnosed at birth, and go on um, to sort of grow up and you know have puberty and the rest of it. And there are some sort of clues with puberty that things aren't quite right because um, the stress, the the CYP twenty one A two, if if there is a problem with that enzyme, the other the other um, hormones get thrown out of whack. So, I think, I think I should explain something here. So, when you have a biochemical pathway and you have an enzyme that um, you have a bad gene for, so that means you're only going to be able to make 50% normal enzyme and then 50% abnormal enzyme that may or may not work. Or, if you have two bad genes, you're not going to really make any of that enzyme. And so, what happens when, when you have a, a 50% because that's sort of where I think we may be or we may have enzymes that um, we may have mutations that partially work, um, is that you're going you're, you're gonna to go along. So the thing that, that's going on in this pathway is you're trying to make stress hormone. So something's going on. You just got Lyme disease. You just got exposed to toxic mold, and you're, and you're sensitive to it. And now your body says, oh, my God, we got to do something because we can't handle this. And it says we got to make some cortisol so that we're safer and we're better and we can, we can handle this. And so it sends the signal to make the cortisol um, through, through, well, it's a, that's a long story, all the feedback loops and whatnot. I won't go into that. But it says we need cortisol. And essentially, CRH goes up. And, and CRH turns on inflammatory cascades and is the most potent mast cell activator in the body. I'm just going to say that as an aside. It's not the direct um, thing that happens to make cortisol, but it does, it does go up when your body wants to make more cortisol. And if you're having trouble making it because you only have a 50% enzyme, CRH goes up really high. And carriers of CYP21A2 mutations have very high CRH. Well, and what's c r h so it's corticotropin releasing hormone okay. released by the hypothalamus in Thank response you. to not enough cortisol yeah. for whatever's going on so c r h is like it's like the skeleton key of the inflammatory system i mean it it pretty much it does a huge it, so i I will actually read off to you things that it does because you'll see how we have all these things so um, it increases dilation in the, in the bowel, so um, your, your blood goes there, and you get dizzy standing up, and you get orthostatic, you get low blood pressure. It causes catecholamine release, which is more adrenaline. We already have a lot of adrenaline. People with this have a lot of adrenaline, and, um, and they're known. It has been shown people with this mutation actually have an exaggerated stress response and low basal arousal. So this causes an even more exaggerated stress response with even more um, sort of adrenaline and catecholamines. Um, it turns on the sympathetic nervous system. It um, causes, um, it causes in- inflammation, um, cytokine release, um, It probably in the brain because it is released locally, but it's released in a lot of places in the body, but one of the places, is right outside of the hypothalamus in the brain. And um, Dr. Theo Herides, who's one of the big mast cell... um, Yeah, he's brilliant. He's big. Yeah. He loves to show the slide of um, the mast cells lined up around the the nerves and the vessels right outside of the hypothalamus. And that's where the CRH is being spritzed onto them. Um, So you can imagine, you know, Hot, maybe that maybe some of those hot flashes we get might I, that's just a thought of mine, but that, that might be related since the hypothalamus regulates body temperature. But um, the brain fog and a lot of the brain inflammation, um, CRH is also in the gut. It's in lots of places, and it it does activate the muscles. Um, another thing that CRH does is it it um, decreases stomach acid, and a lot of the people with um, EDS and a lot of these other things. Um, do have, do seem to feel a lot better when they take hydrochloric acid, even if they have reflux, which is often mast cell mediated. So, um, so it does seem like we don't have enough stomach acid. And when you don't have enough stomach acid, you get, um, fermentation in the gut, you get leaky gut, you get all this other kind of stuff, and you get different kinds of bacteria than what should be in the gut. And many of us have SIBO and dysbiosis. So CRH really actually may be like a skeleton key for this. Um, I actually decided that I would put my theory online um, on a website, as bad as that may be for me, my health-wise, for my health um, to be so exposed. But I put it out there because I think maybe CRH blockers or modifiers um, would really help us. Um, And I just thought I needed to get that out there, and more and more people are starting to look at CRH as possibly being pretty involved. Um, but anyway, um, just kind of going along, so the CYP21A2 um, definitely could explain um, many of the symptom complexes that we see. And to go to the third gene that that runs in this RCCX module, C4, and um C4 is a complement gene. It complements part of the immune system. So it's an immune system gene. And it has been implicated in two things. One, regulating the immune system. And the other one in in brain synaptic branching, which is very interesting um, because one of the things that a lot of us um, seem to have, um, and I didn't go into that. I should have gone into it with the other gene but a lot of us seem to have um, some kind of autistic features with some, not all of us, but some, um, a lot of people have things like synesthesia where you can um, kind of um, see colors, like words will be colors um, where they are crossing of the senses, sort of like, um, sort of like crossed wires. Um, and so that's, that's pretty interesting that c4 would be involved in that and the other thing is um, before or after I came out with my theory about three months after I kind of put this together um, the uh, I realized or uh, there was a there was an article published that schizophrenia was now linked with c4 and that was they were they were saying that the neurodevelopmental aspects of the of the C four gene of the uh, of the, the C four process um, was responsible for the, the abnormal wiring that there was in schizophrenia that had been found in schizophrenia. Um, I think it's it's not that simple. I think um, a lot of people. Well, I'm thinking. I'm thinking that a lot of people with schizophrenia are also carrying CYP21A2 genes, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, and have that stress vulnerability with um, inflammation likely happening as a result of CRH as well, um, and some other other things going on. Um, but I'll I'll get to that in a, in a minute. So these are the these are the three genes. Um, C- oh, C4 genes are also very much associated with autoimmunity. And autoimmune diseases, um, and and also C fourteen has been associated with immunodeficiency syndromes, specifically including CVID, which um, and I'm always forgetting whether it's combined variable immunodeficiency or uh, <laughs> my brain kind of goes out on me sometimes. That's all right. Um, we I can think Google it. Combined. Yeah, um, but CVID is extremely common in EDS. Hmm. Which is also a big clue that C4 force probably involved. so we 've got um we 've got you know this this psych profile that 's kind of involved with a lot of people and e d s now um since I came out with the theory way since then there 's been a tremendous amount of literature about the psych aspect of e d s with the e d s now being linked with um autism bipolar disorder a whole bunch of things um and you know, that's, that sort of goes with what I think what, what might happen in people who are carriers for CYP21A2 and exposed uh, to significant stress. And I can go into that in more detail because there's a, lot, there's a lot with that that I kind of glossed over. But just as a sort of um, just looking at these three genes, the, the last thing that I want to say about them is if you look in this group of people, you see combinations of things that these genes can cause. Um, and th- these genes are very unusual. There's, it's the only place in the, in the genome where genes actually travel mutations can actually travel together. So everywhere else in the genome, right? You have a specific SNP, usually a specific mutation with a a base substitution that is um, very distinct, and you can have a probe for it, and you can say, okay, you're carrying this mutation for this disease, and you have one copy or you have two copies, and this is what we expect. Um, And it's just that one, and if you have one genetic disease, you're not likely to have another really serious one because... It's very unlikely to have one rare thing and another rare thing at the same time. But with the RCCX, um, these genes, the mutations actually travel together, and there are actually mutations that span the two genes, and you get a, sort of a broken half of one and a broken half of the other, and neither one of them are working very well. Um, and so in this case, you can get rare diseases. That um, and and multiple rare diseases at once that tend to show up all together. So when I understood the implication of these three genes, now I start asking my um, my patients and the families that I'm talking to, and the hypermobile any hypermobile person I meet, and you know, and all the forums I'm in, I'm looking for these things, um, and I I start looking for um, all the autoimmune diseases. Um, In terms of the CYP21A2 gene, there were some other things that I didn't mention. There's a high rate of left-handedness, there's a high rate of gender fluidity with that gene, um, with mutations in that gene. Um, There have been a few studies where they're questioning whether they might have high IQs or not. you know, th- things like this have been sort of hinted at. So I start really asking for these things, and I'm finding them in families um, and my own family. <laughs> it's sort of the classic RCCX family, actually. So um, you know, when you start when you start looking, you start seeing that these things kind of run together.
1: Can I? Um, before yes, be, before you start tying this all together, just I, I I need the fourth gene just to keep my mind quiet and move on. Even though we you don't know what it's doing, we don't know what it's doing yet. Can you just list that one?
0: The fourth um, it gene. It has a couple different names. Yep. And um, RP is one of them, and I think that there's another name. You know, your my word finding issues are not mm. good sometimes. Uh, it's SK something, I think. Oh. Um okay. and it, if you ask me that tomorrow I'd probably know exactly, but I RP's enough. People. I'll look RP it up. RP is the old name for it.
1: Yeah, okay.
0: Yes, and it and it looks to be um it's a kinate that no one really understands the implications of yet, is my understanding.
1: Yeah. So what what were you able to do? So you put you you pull together all these pieces, you say, Oh my goodness, there's this the syndrome of genetic syndromes that's going on and seems to explain it, then how, so we can begin to climb back out of here. We've, we've gone into extreme detail here. And I really appreciate your knowledge well, with
0: that. Actually I held back,
1: so. <laughs> well, then we'll have to bring you back on to go deeper, but, but what, so let's start bringing it back to what, what interventions begin to, you know, you can't cure your genetic polymorphisms, but how can you begin to balance? What can you do to begin to balance these things? Because it's a, it's an interesting, you know, you've got both ends of the spectrum. You, you're saying on one hand that, you know, people are very low uh, stimulus, but, but then they hyper-respond. And, yes. you know, so you get these weird dichotomies of, of symptoms.
0: That's right. That's right. And that has actually been um, a problem because a lot of people um, go to their doctors or naturopaths and they get treated, oh, you have adrenal fatigue. So they get at some kind of adrenal cortex or something. And and now, yeah, most of the day they feel like, well a little better, you know? And, but then they get stressed by something, and they feel like they're a cat on a hot tin roof. Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah, it's too much.
0: So there really is a problem. And something that I had not gotten totally through, I started talking about it, but when you have an enzyme block, Okay, and something. Um, what happens is that the precursors—so the things that are going to be made into something—the enzymes make help you make um, something from one from another thing. And so the precursor is the thing that you're that you're trying to make into something else. And the enzyme right. helps you make it into something else. And when the enzyme stops working, the precursor builds up and gets really high. And, yeah, that's such a and good all point. All the stuff you're supposed to make, you're not making enough of. Okay, so if you have this mutation, the cyp 2182 mutation, at some point you will probably hit the block, and that is another. That's a, and that causes a bunch of symptom complexes, and and that block causes massive changes. So whether you're in that block or outside of that block. It causes your cortisol, so our cortisol can be the lowest that you could imagine, and then it can shoot up and be higher than anyone else's. So cortisol is rocketing up and down. (laughs) And then you've got progesterone is rocketing up and down, but it's not progesterone that's measured in a standard way. It's it's a different progesterone, and it changes so fast that you actually can't get a handle. Um, I was working on this with an endocrinologist, and we pretty much decided – that even using salivary um, hormone measuring, you're not going to get a handle because because progesterone and cortisol are going up and down rapidly and probably androgens and estrogens are as well. So as a, as a rule of thumb, I think we're low progesterone, and I, and I can't tell how to treat anybody, but I think we're low progesterone, high estrogen um, prior to the block. And after the block, you're high progesterone and, and, low est- and reasonably about the same estrogen. So th- these things are constantly changing and are dependent on whether you're having this block or not. And what I also have to go back and say, in terms of these RCCX genes, not only are they inherited together, but they also mutate frequently and in all different ways. So they can have a hundred or a million base pair insertions just kind of out of the blue. So none of this can be really tested very well, even with twenty three andme me, which is pretty much not twenty three andme me can't really touch it, but even even whole exome sequencing can't. And there are um, there are copy number variations, meaning that there are multiple there are pseudogenes that may be mutated but they're not expressing, and then there are genes that are expressing for the same gene. Um, so cyp twenty one a two could have a pseudogene and a regular gene. And you have to do functional testing to see which one is actually expressing. So it's extremely complex, which is another reason why I said, oh, I've got to put this on a website because we need more technology. Because there's not enough technology for this to be any kind of diagnostic tool for this. Um, So that, I just wanted to summarize that. I'm going to go back to your question now about what to do about all this. And, again, it's, that's a complicated answer. But what I'm going to say is I'm, I am not treating anyone here. This is just theory. I'm not sure it's 100% correct. Um, I, it has informed some of my treatment, some of what I've done, and some of what I've done has worked. Um, but I think that what I teach my patients that come in with this kind of stuff is the first thing that you need to do is learn how to notice what's going on. And notice is essentially mindfulness, but I like I sort of like notice better sometimes because it sounds simpler. Um, you notice what makes you worse. You notice what makes you better. You notice what symptoms happen together. You notice if you try something new, what happens. Um, and you actually keep pretty good notes about what happens because it's, sometimes it's hard to remember. Um, It's hard to remember how sick something made us or that something made us better. I I can't tell you how many times, um, you know, I've just thought, oh, my mast cells are better. I'm just going to go off my keto chip and and I'm just completely
1: Blow things up again, right? (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Or um, another thing that I take, um, I think I'm in block a lot. um, And I have a lot of the symptoms that I think go with the high progesterone. So when I see those, when I see that symptom complex, I, I tell people, um, you know, you might want to, or I don't really recommend, but I say you could try um, something called berberine and see see if it helps. Now you're not supposed to be on that for any length of time, and it may not be safe. But um, I can't go off of that because I think I'm in black all the time, and it gets it it gets rid of those symptoms, which. It's really extreme sleepiness, kind of being really out of it, being extremely fatigued, having trouble even standing up and walking across the supermarket. If I go off of that, I, I have all those symptoms again within four days. Wow. Um, and if so, that's that's a symptom complex that I sort of found.
1: So, t- tell us about how people can get to your website and say, you know what, this is. She's making there's a lot here, but there's something that makes a lot of sense, and, and I need to know more about this.
0: Yes, absolutely. So my website is www.rccx So that is um, rat cat, um, Cat again and X dot com. And on the website, I talk about sort of the story of how I put this together, which is what I went into here. Um, and I also have kind of a chronic illness section and a psych section. And, you know, I, I, I there's a lot of issues with all these chronic illnesses because people have been so mistreated by the medical establishment. And it's very disturbing to me. And I've been mistreated, too. Um so when we start, you know, saying that there's a psych connection, um, people get very upset. Um, and I, I think it's an unfortunate truth, unfortunately. And I didn't go into a lot of detail here, and I can do a little bit of that about this psych profile. This psych profile is not, um, it's not, past, it's not a, 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 a uh, patho whatever <laughs> it's not a bad profile it's actually a very good profile it means people are really good thinkers kind of outside of the box thinkers they're individualistic um, they're creative um, and you know it also means they react they react to their environment so they're they they're sensitive they pick up a lot of things in the environment um, but the problem with it is and I'm going to I'm just going to go over that real quick here is that when you're sensitive, you lay down PTSD wiring. And so, and PTSD is post-traumatic stress disorder. So as you're going through your day as a sensitive person with this little burst of extra adrenaline, you might start off your life saying, oh, I really like roller coasters. They make me feel alive. And I loved roller coasters. I love to go upside down. I, I backpacked around the world alone. I did all kinds of stuff. And I love the adrenaline rush and sort of being my in my in my in charge of my destiny. I have seen um well, I'm gonna give another a different sort of somebody similar to um an A B seal, not an SEAL, <laughs> but who had had this this wiring, okay. This wiring means that you react like when when stuff starts happening, you can really handle things. You can you can triage emergencies. You can you can tell people what to do because you get that adrenaline rush. And then if you can center yourself, you really know what to do, and you think systemically you can fix things. But if you if as bad things happen to you with this hyper arousal you set up epigenetic pathways and epigenetic means that now genes turn on and they start expressing and we have a whole epigenetic mechanism for dealing with stress so that we're not harmed, so that we, so that we survive stressful situations. So the brain wires more and more and more for danger the more things that are going on. And if you have a a rip-roaring Lyme infection and you're under emotional stress and you have this RCCX complex, I believe that what happens is you have an over-arousal. Your body gets really ramped up. There's a lot of evidence in ME-CFS that the immune system is hyper in people that get sick. That's starting to come out. Um, So everything's on high alert, and your brain gets rewired, to help you respond even more aggressively to stress in the future. And that is PTSD wiring. That's why people with PTSD have nightmares, flashbacks. Um, they feel like it's, it's happening over and over again. Um, they're, they can be numb or avoidant at times. So it's sort of high arousal, low arousal states. Um, but those are danger responses. So we get more and more and more danger responses. So it's very interesting that when I first started getting sick, I had all this adrenaline dumping, and I felt like I was um, being electrocuted all the time. I was so jazzed up. And then um, after being sick for a while, one of the symptom complexes that came was not really responding to anything. And actually, I went into physiological freeze. So as, as you get more PTSD wiring, you start going into freeze and something called shutdown more and more. And so freeze is actually what happens to the rabbit. So the rabbit's running from the fox, that's fight or flight, and that's how we are sort of day one, you know. That's how we get our work done, we, we, and that's how we exercise really hard. We pump ourselves up. That's normal for us. And then as we get sicker, and we, we really go into fight or flight, and then, and then we start going into freeze more often, and freeze is when the rabbit is caught by the fox and is now immobilized, And the whole body, it's an entire body change. So all of your physiology changes, including how fast your gut moves, how fast your heart moves, how open your lungs are, lots of things. With freeze, you breath hold. Um, And with freeze, you can actually, if it's severe, you can become immobilized, which I've had happen a few times. I am getting immobilized and fall off my horse and don't even defend myself. Um, and that's hap- that ha- starts happening more and more as you're getting sicker. Um, so a lot of people are in freeze. Um, the other thing is Navajo's cell danger response is actually probably related to freeze. Um, and that that's the, at the cellular level what's going on when the organism is stressed for a long period of time. Um, so anyway, shutdown is a little different. You get opiate dumping and you get kind of altered. And um, I really do believe that that's what LDN does for me, is block some of that shutdown, that opiate dumping that goes on in the brain, because it made me much clearer. Now, it has different effects on different people, so it's not something that's really clear what it does, but, um, but for me, it made me much more mentally clear, and I see that in a lot of my patients. Um, it's also used in Europe for PTSD to block dissociation, which is very interesting as well. So, um, you know, low dose naltrexone is something that a lot of us have have tried, um, and it is part of my regimen. So, um, so there, there's that there's that aspect. So, on my website, um, I talk a little bit about the the dysautonomia, the imbalance between fight or flight, and I do talk a bit about danger responses and Forges is, is really the person who um, talks a lot about danger response. P-O-R-G-E-S. If you're more interested in reading about freeze, um, you can read his stuff um, because you will learn some tricks of how to deal with freeze. If you notice you breath hold and sort of immobilize when dangerous things happen, a lot of us will relate that we used to be real fighters. Um, if we were going to get mugged, we were going to beat up the person who mugged us. And um, now I know if I was mugged, I'd probably just collapse in a heap and not be able to move. Um, it's very, it, it's, there is a real change. Um, so on my website, I do have a psych section and a chronic illness section. And I recommend that people read both because I have a lot of suggestions about kind of what I did to deal with my danger responses and to um, help kind of rewire my brain. So it's not so much in in freeze and and fight or flight um, because you can rewire your brain. There are things you can do for that. And, you know, we know about DNRS and we know about GUPTA. Um, You know, those are the the limbic desensitizing programs that are available. Um, I can't personally say how great they are or not great, but Theoretically, I believe they would work. I just haven't done that. But I've done a lot on my own, and I talk about that on
1: the website. Sharon, you have been incredibly generous with your time, and I know we – barely even scratched the surface. I can tell by your excitement and you're trying to fit everything in. And we covered a ton of territory. And basically all we did was say that there's a little, right? There's, like I said, we scratched the surface. We said there's this syndrome out here, this collection of gene mutations, and it sets up a whole galaxy of alterations in hormones, in inflammation, in stress response, all all of the above. And I don't know if you yeah. can hear my dog barking in the background. He's his stress response has gone on because the ambulance is passing by. But it's and it's incredible how you've put this together. And I think it would do people a lot of good, especially if you're struggling with with some of these things that, that you've mentioned, some of these symptoms and you know and the psychological part of it. I mean, we forget and we deny and it's not talked about very much, but the the body and the brain, it's a two-way street. It's not a one-way street. The brain is not simply in control of the body. The body influences the brain. So if things get off physiologically in your body, that can absolutely have an effect. And if you've got crazy inflammation in your gut, and we're starting to learn that even the bacteria that you're carrying around can absolutely influence your your mood and your brain and how that's operating. So it's such a complex feedback system. And it's so interesting that you're putting these people uh, these pieces together and you're clearly thinking outside the box. I mean, I could hear when you're talking about these characteristics of people with this complex, it's like, yep, that's Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> so m- yep. maybe if, if you survive this and don't have to sleep for three days afterwards, uh, maybe we can, we can come back and revisit some of these things and, and go a little bit deeper. Cause I know you're going to keep learning about this and putting more pieces together. And I just appreciate uh, all the hard work that's gone into it. It's incredible what you've done. And when I first came across it, I was like, oh my goodness, this woman is on to something amazing.
0: Well, thank you. I hope so. I believe. We, we all need help.
1: So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And the thing is, True innovation, true innovation always. If you look at medical innovation, it never comes from the big medical centers. It comes from the fringes. The Wright brothers were competing with uh, the at the time it was the Department of Army, who had a, a budget that was like a thousand times greater. But the army never flew. The Wright brothers did, and. We get what happens is institutions get institutional thinking, and nobody can think outside the box because you're not one of the club anymore. It's just the way human beings work. So it takes somebody like you to really shake things up. And thank you for putting it out there on the web and making it available to people. It's very generous of you. Oh, you're
0: welcome. Thanks. Thanks for saying that. It helps me feel better.
2: This was such an interesting interview. You know, it's fascinating to have someone who's trained both as a doctor and a psychiatrist. I think that was what she how she was able to start putting these pieces together to see, you know, both these right, psychiatric at, symptoms as well as these medical at symptoms some as point, well. Right.
1: Theoretically when we Talked to Dr. Bransfield remember he said, well, we're all trained as MDs, as psychiatrists, so we should be doing the whole. But really what happens is you tend to go one way or the other. It's hard to hold both paradigms in your mind at the same time.
2: And Sharon has been able to do it.
1: Absolutely. Very impressive, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, if you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, hit the subscribe button so you won't miss an episode.
2: And if you really like what we're doing, leave us a review on your podcast app. It helps us reach more people like you.
1: And if you really, really like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, share this podcast with a friend. You might save their life.
2: Do you have any feedback, suggestions for guests, really anything? Send an email to feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com.
1: And last, as you long-time Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day.
2: Did you know ninjas get their driver's license at 16? Seconds. (laughs)